0: Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Well, folks, thanks for joining yet another episode of the Foundation Podcast. It's always a pleasure to have guests as we usually do each week and as you know, most of those guests are luminaries from outside the Texas Public Policy Foundation. This week, we have someone who is not only inside the Texas Public Policy Foundation, but also one of our longest tenured colleagues here, Mr. Bill Peacock, Vice President of Research. In addition to Bill telling you, explaining for those of us who are laymen about the importance of things like the electricity markets and the idiocy of things like renewable energy subsidies, we're also going to hear a lot from Bill about what it means to be in the think tank world. I know from visiting with people around the country and across Texas about the nature of think tanks that people think that we sort of get in our corner and the offices are really dark and we come up with these crazy ideas and we get lucky once in a while with one of them getting passed. But in fact, there's a very orderly, purposeful process we follow, starting with whether we even get engaged in an issue. And for anyone in this country, so you don't don't even have to be in Texas for this to be true, anyone in this country who considers themselves conservative, a libertarian a pro-market person I would say with no exaggeration that Bill Peacock has played an important role there because bill is the vice president of our research at one of the largest public policy organizations outside Washington DC plays the vital role in determining what we say and how we say it so if you consider yourself a movement conservative, a thinking man's libertarian, a pro-market kind of guy, someone who wants to cut through the noise and get down to the brass tacks of policy, I think you're going to enjoy Bill Peacock today. Bill, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on, Kevin.
0: You bet. So before we get into the couple of specific policy issues that we want to cover today, the renewable energy issue, which is relevant nationwide, but a particularly relevant issue for us in Texas today, and electricity markets always relevant, but especially when it's summertime because we like to run air conditioning. It's, it's air conditioning is one of the reasons that we have 28 million people living in Texas now. I want first our listeners to get some insight into how we go about our work. And in, in, in other words, people are often surprised that it takes nearly 100 people, the number of employees we have at the Public Policy Foundation, to do the work we do. And I think they might really be intrigued by your day-to-day work. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure, Kevin. Well, when you look at what folks who support free markets are up against, one hundred people really isn't enough, <laughs> but but it's a good start, and, and, and the foundation has come a long way just in in the few years I've been here. Uh, you know, back when uh, Brooke Rollins took us over, I think we had about three or four people. I got here in two thousand five, and we had about I think I was employee number eight or so. And, and today, as you say, we're, we're close to 100. And, and the, the, I mean, the reason that the foundation has taken off like that is because people across the country have become you know, more and more convinced that real change is going to happen at the state level. You know, we, we've just seen at the federal level too often that th- things just don't change, at least for the better. And it really hasn't mattered so much what party or administration was up there. It's just, you know, it's all coming to a stalemate and things are moving in the wrong direction. And so TPPF has just been able to take advantage of that for a lot of different reasons, in part because we're in Texas, right? And so, which is the largest conservative state in the country. So we've been able to take advantage of that in several ways. Uh, I think the, the main thing that we do is we work really hard at identifying where we think Texas ought to go in, into the future and the the first thing we do is after an end of the legislative session we just look down and say okay what's what's been accomplished and what hasn't and what is on the horizon out there 19 months away when the texas legislature comes back into session and we take an assessment of that we talk to members of the legislature members of the public members uh, who are interested in public policy people who are interested in public policy and sit down and sort of map out that future uh, what that might look like, we we look at the research we need to go through and, and produce to to accomplish that, and also look at uh, you know, the media strategies and things like that that we can get this vision for a free market future out into the public domain and have an influence in the Texas legislature.
0: So over your tenure here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, you have seen some victories, policy wins. You've seen some challenges. I, I often tell people from a historical perspective, if you consider yourself to be center right on the American political spectrum, you're probably concerned about the expansion of government into individual lives. And, and I say that not to be kind of knee-jerk anti-government, much more importantly, and I know you share this because we, we talk about this a lot, that what that government intrusion has done is really begun to undermine the dignity of the human person. So much so that when we in our think tank world use the phrase dependency state or welfare state, we're not intending to be pejorative, at least not most of the time. What we're trying to explain is that individual human persons, our brothers and sisters, as as citizens, both in the city of God and the city of man have been made dependent upon a government that is less transparent and more powerful over time. So that's a long winded way of framing this this question, which I will repeat. In your tenure here, what have been sort of the, the signature victories, each of which would be collective, a whole bunch of people involved in that? And which issues do you think continue to be challenging for people who are in favor of freer markets?
1: We've had a, a number of what I would call significant victories. Uh, and it's not just us at the foundation, it's, it's Texas and sure. folks who are pushing for things at the legislature. Uh, one of the earliest ones I remember is uh, you know, back in 2006 or so, the uh, Texas Supreme Court said that the system of school finance is unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And that put in a whole bunch of things in, in, in motion and where the state wanted to increase revenue to pay more for schools. Well, the favored way to increase revenue at the time was a payroll tax. Uh, And we called it here at the foundation a jobs tax. And and, and what happens when you tax something? the The old Reagan adage, right? When if you tax something, you get less of it. And here we were getting ready to tax jobs and we we're gonna have less of them in Texas. We didn't think that was the right way to go. So we worked with a lot of advocates out there to push this, uh, uh, you know, push this idea out there that the one thing we don't wanna do is tax jobs in Texas. And, but it looked like it was going through, it passed the House and it got over to the Senate. But we worked with the uh, Wall Street Journal and one day they ran an editorial talking about the Texas jobs tax. And by the end of the day, the Texas jobs tax was dead. Right. Now the, That's a big win. Yeah, it was a huge <laughs> win, right? Now, the end result of that was the margins tax, which, you know, is not the greatest thing in the world, uh, but it's a lot better to taxing margins than taxing jobs. So that, that was and one. And that's, of the,
0: in essence, a business tax, for, a, a especially business for people outside Texas. Tax, yeah, it, it's yeah. a,
1: it's a really an income tax, but it's not quite an income tax, yeah. right? And uh, so we do kind of have an income tax here on business, but it's just tax on the, their margins or their, you know, Sales over over cost kind sure of thing right so that was one of the big ones I'd say another one was um, uh, well relatedly so a couple of year, a few years later 2015 when we were able to work with the Texas Legislature and a lot of other folks to significantly reduce the Texas margin tax mm-hmm. we we went in that 2015 session and and the state had a lot of extra money and typically what legislators do including unfortunately the Texas legislature over time when they have extra money they spend it mm-hmm. but you know a lot of people spoke up and and the legislature not only didn't spend all that money but they cut a tax the margin tax by a significant amount to reduce those taxes and reduce our taxes and it was turned out to be a good thing because uh, they didn't actually have as much money as they had projected they did and so if they'd spent all that money we would have been facing a really significant problem in 2017 to come up with enough money to, to underline that baseload spending. So
0: there's just two examples right mm-hmm. there. No, those are good. So almost every line of work has a win column and a loss column. And just as wins are collective, losses are collective, what continue to be, whether in Texas or for that matter at the federal level, the most significant challenges in terms of specific policies for people who want freer markets?
1: well i think one of the biggest challenges out there today is getting out to the public through the well actually to the policymakers in, in texas and, and elsewhere that government's too big right? yeah. the foundation along with a lot of other folks for for many years has has tried to limit the increase in spending you know population growth plus inflation is the perhaps the most popular limit on that, because if you don't have that limit in there, they even blow beyond that. And we've had a great success the last couple of years with what we call the conservative Texas budget, because the legislature has, in the last two sessions, kept their spending below that. And so we've moved forward with that. But I think the really next big challenge is to say, well, it's great that we're slowing the growth of government, but but who in this room thinks that government isn't already too big, right? and if that's the case, we need to take the next step to stopping the growth of government, right? and, and we're, we're working on that here at the foundation. Uh, we, we haven't put all that together yet, but you know, how do we go talk to the people and say, all right, it's time to move from slowing the growth to stopping the growth? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we start calling it the zero growth budget. But, but if you walk into a room of conservatives, you, just, you won't see anybody raise a hand up there if you say, who, who thinks government needs to grow? And so we need to start working that and get that message through to the
0: uh, populace. It's remarkable to me when I analyze or read an analysis of the rate of growth in government spending at any level. People might immediately think about the prodigious spending of Congress but even in conservative states like Texas, we often have a spending problem we're trying to check. And then people say, well, as conservative minded people, surely the government's closest to us, our, our city government and our county governments have to spend even more responsibly. Well, in Texas, we know the opposite is true. They're actually the most profligate spenders. So I think that that will continue to be, if it's not a chink in our armor, maybe the Achilles heel of the conservative movement, that when we're in power, whether as president of the United States or leading state governments, or even as mayors and, and county commissioners, we are not doing a good job at checking spending. If we continue to spend at the rate that we are, we're endangering the economic prosperity. But even more importantly than that, our freedom, because it's connected, our freedom, of course, is connected to how large the government is.
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly the case. And, and that ties into one of the other challenges I think we see out there all the time is regulation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the... the the truth of the matter is that regulators like to regulate, that's their job. And they're gonna to continue to regulate unless legislators do something about it. And of course, the number one way they can do something about it is spend less money on regulation because if you spend less money on regulation, you're gonna have less regulators to regulate. I mean, it seems kind of redundant, but it's, it's a simple truth. I'm told
0: that, even Texas A&M Aggies can understand that. <laughs> <laughs> you knew it was it w- coming.
1: W- w- I knew it was coming, and and w- I was prepared. So we'll just okay. move on past that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's really simple, but it doesn't really get translated very well. A- and, and so the challenge is, is that you, you rarely see legislators, particularly appropriators, willing to cut back on spending. Uh, they may yell and scream about you know, a particular way an agency is doing its job, but rarely will you see them going and cut because cutting spending is sort of the opposite of what a lot of their, them are there to do as well. And so you, you just don't see that happen a lot. So we need to really work on that, not just across the board uh, spending cuts like we were talking about a moment ago, but maybe targeted spending cuts too. When, when you have a state agency uh, going out of control, they need to do more about that. We did have one example like that uh, recently in Texas. It was the Texas Racing Commission. Mm-hmm. And they had decided that they were going to allow gambling slot machines mm-hmm. at uh, racetracks. And they, they called it historical uh, racing, but they were slot machines. Mm-hmm. And um, and they wouldn't listen to anybody. They wouldn't listen to the attorney general. They wouldn't listen to the legislature. They were gonna do this uh, through illegally, uh, most would say through their uh, Uh, regulatory abilities, rulemaking commission at the commission. And the legislature finally went in and said, look, you can do whatever you want, but we're gonna cut your budget if you do it. And some of them wouldn't listen, but eventually some of them did and some of them left and the governor was able to put some others on there. But just one agency shows you Mm -hmm. how difficult it can be to control the vast bureaucracy uh, if you don't really do it with money.
0: Sure, I think one of the, the challenges facing the United States, and for that matter, even Texas, really any state, regardless of how small or large they are, is the growth of the administrative state. And I think that that is the result of legislators failing to take courageous votes. We don't mean that in any critical way. I think even in our think tank ideal world, we understand the pressures of politics. Sure. But there was a time in the history of this republic when the men and women in legislatures and in Congress would take those difficult votes That leads me to this point before we move on to the specific policies you and I want to discuss. And that is a a theme we discuss here, which is how listeners can get involved in in terms of their civic activism. And I tell them to, to be sure and know that to know their mayors, their city council members, their state legislators, because those folks need encouragement to take those hard votes. Otherwise, we're left with this very uh, opaque administrative state that, as you say, exists to create administrative rules and regulation. And until we get a handle on that, especially at the federal level, I think that we are stifling prosperity and freedom in this country.
1: I absolutely agree, Kevin. And I think one of the things that helps in this situation is, Maybe not very popular, you know, in in capitals and city halls and things like that, is to really put these kind of things at a moral level. Mm -hmm. When when a government takes taxpayer money and gives it to some big corporation over here, in most circumstances that would be called theft, right? But because they do it through these mechanisms, taxes, and and economic development funds, and things like that. It, it's called you know economic development. It, it's it's called enhancing economic growth. It's it's called all these different job creation. But you know, if you look at it clearly, it's it's usually nothing, a lot more than theft. And so to be able to talk about things at the moral level like that is is, is important. Mm-hmm. And you know. It, you can't really, you got to be careful how you apply that to different individuals in government uh, because a lot of folks are just coming up here and doing what they think is the right thing to do. But if you help educate folks on, on this from a moral perspective, I think it makes it clearer and the public debate moves along in a better direction.
0: Sure. Says a lot about our education system, but we'll, we'll save that conversation for another day. So that leads me to the question, first question about this specific policy that you're leading our efforts on here at the Public Policy Foundation, and that is renewable energy subsidies. So let's let's sort of in this, this give and take between you and me, go through this explanation for our listeners in much the same way we do internally at the foundation when we're getting into a policy. So the first thing we're going to do is talk about the facts, good, bad, and in between. And then we're going to talk about sort of the competing ways that policymakers might tackle the problem, and then we'll get to the solution that, that we have offered. So that's actually my way of preventing editorial comments while I ask those questions. So in Texas, we have renewable energy subsidies, and of course there are renewable energy subsidies at the federal level, which I know you'll talk about. So even if someone is listening to us outside the wonderful state of Texas, this is a very relevant question, because this is something that all Americans are facing. What is the situation with renewable energy subsidies in Texas today?
1: Well, there's a variety of subsidies here in Texas uh, that we see in place. One of the largest ones was the the building of these, uh, what's known as CREZ Transmission Lines. uh, CREZ Transmission Lines. Yeah, Competitive Renewable Energy Zones. Okay, even a (laughs) Longhorn
0: can understand that. Thank you.
1: Amen, brother. And we, we built these lines, uh, they were authorized in 2005, and they were finished by about 2014 or so, I think. And, and they cost $7 billion to build. And they were all lines that moved from, you know were designed to take electricity from West Texas, where all the wind is, to Central and East and Southern Texas, where all the people are and it doesn't do any good to to have the wind blow out in West Texas unless you can transmit it out there but there is no reason to build these lines out there except for the purpose of transmitting uh, electricity that was built on uh, or generated by uh, wind energy and so that's the first the biggest one we also have uh, local tax abatements that are offered through chapters 312 and chapters 313 of the uh, Texas Tax Code and uh, those were they, wind farms come in and, and solar farms come in and they get tax abatements where they don't have to pay all the taxes they would normally have to pay. The county commissioners and the school districts and hospital districts can offer uh, tax abatements and cut their tax bill, but somebody's got to pay the taxes in the thing. And then finally there's uh, renewable energy credits in Texas where um, uh, retailers are mandated to buy a certain percentage of renewable energy for the portfolio uh, that they sell to the public. And if they don't buy that, then they have to buy these credits to make up the difference. And those credits basically just go back to the generators. So the renewable energy generators get to sell electricity and credit. So they get kind of double counting there. And those are the main subsidies
0: in Texas. So <clears throat> walk us through the reason that those facts, are problematic for consumers in Texas?
1: Well the, the main reason that they're problematic al- along with the federal tax credit that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about is that renewable energy subsidies for all their, or renewable energy for all their hype aren't very efficient and they're
0: very unreliable. unreliable. You mean the wind doesn't blow 24 hours a day, even in Uh, West Texas?
1: The wind doesn't blow 24 hours a day and the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day. Even in Texas? Even in Texas. Uh, For instance, in in Texas, the uh, wind blows the most at 1 o'clock in the morning. Well, everybody's sleeping. Uh, And when the the wind blows the least, about 2 to 3 in the afternoon. And right as we're getting to our peak use, you know, we use the most electricity between about four and six o'clock when people are still at work or leaving work and coming home and the ACs are all flipping on at home, but the factories and buildings are all on. And that's when we use the most electricity and it's 110 degrees outside, but the wind isn't blowing very much then. And, and that's the problem, is that we're paying all this money, $13 billion over the last 12 years or so, just in Texas subsidies, uh, or t- subsidies in Texas alone. We could have built a lot of natural gas turbine plants for that money, and had a lot left over uh, to provide that electricity, but instead we're putting all this money into wind, and the wind's not there when we need it, but it's, it's blowing at one o'clock when everybody's asleep and nobody's using electricity.
0: So let's one devil's advocate might say that fossil fuels are dirty and so they don't like the idea of building more natural gas plants and surely that we we can work toward greater battery storage of that wind energy during those times that the wind isn't blowing well
1: Texas in particular but the United States have cleaned up their air, if you will, dramatically over the last 20, 30 years while we were building coal plants, while we were building natural gas plants. I mean, the 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 amount of reduction of pollutants in the air has just been astounding. And all that's being done while we've been using more and more electricity generated by coal and natural gas. And, and, and that's because, in Texas at least, we've had a pretty good free market approach to these kind of things we let the the companies figure out the best way to do it for the most part and uh and then install scrubbers and those kind of things and it's really worked uh, i just read where the uh, united states has led the world in the redu- reduction of co2 emissions right mm-hmm. and if you haven't noticed we don't have any co2 emission reductions and uh, regulations in texas at least at the national level i think california's trying to do something and we see how that well that's working out for california but, you know, and, and so this thing about clean air, just, just it's working without all these extra mm-hmm. cost added in. And, and, and that's what you get. There's just no way that wind or solar can compete on a cost basis. They're just too unreliable and too inefficient. They're two of the oldest energy producing technologies in the world, much older than, than coal and natural gas and nuclear. And they were replaced for a reason, because they just aren't efficient, and they're very expensive. And so adding expensive batteries to expensive wind generation or solar generation is just going to make it more expensive. It's not going to make it more affordable.
0: And so let's say that someone's listening, and rather than being a devil's advocate, they would describe themselves as being all of the above when it comes to sources of energy and like, I think almost every American, interested in clean, abundant, reliable energy, whatever that would be, making sure that there isn't some egregious environmental impact or even a moderate environmental impact. And they're also concerned, Bill, because you and I know, working in a think tank every day, about their own personal bottom line economically. With those factors in mind, for someone who's open-minded and and they, they want to make the right policy decision here, why are these renewable energy subsidies problematic?
1: Well, I would get back to your comment about all of the above. You know, at the foundation, we're all of the above too, mm-hmm. right? We don't have a preference on what energy is used to generate electricity. Right? We, we think the markets ought to solve that issue, right? And the most efficient, the most reliable, the most affordable, if we let the market operate, that'll work. And, and it'll also take into account people's concerns about, for instance, CO2 emissions. As, as I pointed out, it's the market in the United States which is providing this downward uh, slant in CO2 emissions. Mm-hmm. Because the market sees that people are concerned about those kind of things, rightly or wrongly, doesn't really matter. The market looks at that and says, okay, we're gonna reduce our emissions, no regulations, The market is handling it. They're also going to provide, so it can take care of that. It can take care of uh, pollutants, real pollutants. It also takes care of the cost. The market does that. And so anybody who's in the the all of above camp should be in the market camp and not the subsidies camp because the subsidies is going to distort the outcome. Subsidies are going to distort Mm -hmm. the outcome. And those folks who want the best, the cleanest environment at the best cost aren't going to get it with subsidies.
0: Sure. So, if you take away the subsidies, the cost of what's being subsidized goes up relative to the cost of the other sources of energy that are not being subsidized.
1: right, and of course, there there are subsidies really across the board mm-hmm. for you know oil and gas has has had its fair share of subsidies over the years, and but they're nothing like to the extent that they are for renewable energy. They're they're renewable energy subsidies are 10, 15, 20, 100 times, depending on which, um, which source you use, higher than for oil and gas or coal or mm-hmm. even nuclear, which gets quite a bit of subsidies. And, and so we, we're against subsidies for everybody, but we want to start with the renewable energy subsidies here because that those are the ones that are causing the most damage sure. uh, to uh, the, the market process. So
0: there, the level of those subsidies is so out of proportion right. that if you take them away the availability of wind and solar energy probably decreases significantly.
1: Well as we talk about if it weren't for the subsidies uh, we, we wouldn't see many turbines or solar farms around yeah. because they, they just can't compete which is an important thing to think about when you're living in west texas somewhere and they're talking about putting a solar farm or or a wind farm right in your backyard almost and you're going to have to sit there and watch those turbines spin round and round and round and hear that hear that the noise from them they kind of roar their turbines right? mm-hmm. like jet turbines they roar they they flicker the the sunlight i mean they can do all kinds of things and and they wouldn't be in your backyard if it weren't for these subsidies.
0: Sure, and we're trying to highlight that, that human story of this policy, which is it's something we've spent more time doing the last couple of years, and we've worked on some videos that, that emphasize that. Are those available on our website now?
1: Yeah, they are. We've, uh, at our website, www.texaspolicy.com slash renewable. Mm-hmm. You can go there and find our, our videos. We've got an online map that we just posted last week on uh, the, the ongoing fights against wind subsidies in the different counties around Texas and a lot of research and blog posts and, and other bits of
0: information. So I wanna highlight one of those places where we have been active and that's Georgetown, Texas. One of the most politically conservative places in Texas, 30, 35 miles north of Austin. I happen to live there and therefore I'm familiar with it and really is one of the greatest places on God's green earth. But the mayor of georgetown who's other than god's country college station you you, mean right you know present company considered sure yeah that that makes up for the aggie comment earlier college station in georgetown one good thing about college station my point is they do not claim to be powered by 100 percent wind in georgetown though we do and we're having an event there on august 15th public is invited as we all always do from a think tank perspective we're just trying to get down to the facts and we're making no claim other than the facts, all of the facts are not exactly available. And so why don't you highlight for people, whether they're living in Georgetown or they're interested in this kind of event, which we'll be doing a lot more of, what are our approaches to finding out the facts and secondly, what the solutions might be?
1: Well, that's one of the challenges with renewable energy subsidies. It's very difficult to find out the facts. Most of these things are, are hidden. Uh, subsidies or we've done a paper we that we're gonna publish in in a little while that went to look at the federal production tax credit and who's getting the benefit of all that and I mean it's billions and billions of dollars we estimate it's going to be about a 44 billion dollar cost over time um, for the production tax credit And, and our author spent hours and hours trying to determine how much that was and the, the largest company uh, who got tax credits was getting five billion dollars has gotten five billion dollars so far very difficult to find same thing with local uh tax abatements very hard to find out matter of fact um, the a lot of this information is hidden because of exemptions and open meetings
0: and open records acts here in texas so just to interject briefly, someone could be agnostic on the issue of where we get our energy, but be really concerned about open government or the lack thereof, and be interested in this example, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly the case. And the same thing with the power contracts that Georgetown has. They're using solar largely, to they say, to meet their 100% renewable Goal. but of course it's kind of hard to meet a 100% renewable goal with solar at nighttime,
0: right? The
1: sun just doesn't happen to Sounds be Sounds like
0: shining. a lot of hot air to me. <laughs>
1: maybe so, maybe so, and, and but their contracts are hi- in large part hidden from the public too because under these exemptions from Open Meetings Act, so it's very difficult, but we've got some very bright people and hard-working people are going through this and we're going to be talking about some of these challenges when we get there. And and again, the the solutions are, one, just transparency. Let this be out there, let it be part of the public debate. That way we'll have a lot more back and forth about this, and a lot of these things may not happen if they're actually exposed to uh, the light of day. Uh, Another thing would be to look at how we can wean ourselves off these renewable energy subsidies and, and stop those at the federal level Uh, The production tax credit, it's it's scheduled to go away at the end of next year, but it's been scheduled to go away for a long time and and it hasn't ever gone. It always gets renewed. Uh, The Texas legislature is going to be, well, Chapter 312 and Chapter 313, the local tax abatements I was talking about earlier, are scheduled to expire. And they're going to go away over the next couple of years if the legislature doesn't do anything. So the legislature is going to have to act on those. So there's going to be a debate in the 2019 legislature. Uh, we're, we're not big fans of government picking winners and losers. Mm-hmm. We'd just as soon have all these go away. But at least we'd like to see uh, the subsidies taken away for renewable energy projects because of the harm they cause to the electricity grid and the, the lack of jobs that they actually
0: create. Sure, a lot of empty promises there regarding economic development. Exactly. Good. Well, to learn more, as always, listeners can go to TexasPolicy.com. In this case, TexasPolicy.com slash renewable. Right? Right. Okay. So let's move on to one other very related policy question before I ask you a question I ask a lot of guests regarding what you like to read, what have been some formative books, because our our listeners might enjoy that. And that is, what is the unique characteristic about the Texas electricity market? And why is that important for any listener to know?
1: Well, the Texas electricity market is the most competitive electricity market in the world. It's the only electricity market that allows the market to actually determine how much energy is produced. Right when a um, when a generator goes into any other state in the country or any other nation, for that matter, they go to the PUC and say, we want to build- Public Utility Commission. A, yeah, Public Utility Commission say, so we want to build a generation plant here. How much are you gonna pay us, essentially? Mm-hmm. And they get a rate and then they get they get paid that amount for building the generation, no matter how successful the plant is or how much it was needed. But here in Texas, uh, it's all up to the the companies, they make the decisions, they come in. But if they're not good at what they do or they forecast it wrong, the shareholders of that company are the ones who pay for the mistakes, not consumers. And that only happens in Texas. And because of that, because of the competitive nature of this market, uh, it's, it's boomed over year, over the years,' it's blossomed and we have more electricity, even during a tight summer, uh, th- this summer, we've had more electricity than we know what to do with. And, and because people have been willing to risk their capital to come here and uh, build generation for electricity plants. And it's been really uh, good. It's also been one of the reasons why wind has been so successful in Texas. Be- because of the subsidies, mm-hmm. they can get on the grid and compete on price. Mm-hmm. And when they're being subsidized, they can just put the wind out there you know, electricity from when, at any price they want. As a matter of fact, they have been known to pay people to take electricity off their hands because they can do that because of the subsidies from the federal government. So that that's really what's so important about the, the electricity market from a national level. If, if we continue to have these subsidies come in, in here and harm the electricity market in Texas and, and make inroads into here, it, it could... Uh, Really harm the the best example of of competition in the electricity market
0: in the whole world. Sure Thank you for that. Thank you for your leadership on this important policy area now for the last question Which is sort of a two-parter? What are some books or essays you read? Maybe recently maybe earlier in your career that have been formative and what do you read on a more regular basis in terms of current events or specific policies, or for that matter, just larger context about the philosophy of civil society?
1: Well, there, there's a, a few things I, I like to read and um, on a regular basis, and I think some of the books, I'll start with those. Um, one of my favorites is Miles Gone By by William F. Buckley. It's his uh, literary autobiography where he got to the end of his career and, and near the end of his life, and he decided he'd written everything that he, wanted, he was gonna write, but he, what he did was he went back and compiled those into one book and called it his literary autobiography. And you can just see in that book the, the gentleness uh, of William Buckley, the, the integrity of William Buckley, and, and how you know, we, we talk a lot about happy warriors here at the Foundation, and he was the, you know, just the perfect example of that, as was really uh, Ronald Reagan, I think. And uh, Buckley also wrote a book called The Reagan I Know, and, uh, or Reagan, I knew. Excuse me, and uh, and he wrote about Reagan in that way, and and you could also see that in there. And then um, there's a great book. Uh, speaking of happy warriors, written by a guy named Douglas Wilson. It's called Flags Out Front, and it's just a great book about uh, how a uh, a little uh, uh, the uh, the head, the president of a small Christian uh, Bible college. Uh, somewhere is all of a sudden confronted with this uh, attacks from the culture. Where, uh, as a prank, some student put the Christian flag above the American flag, and he thought, "Oh, that's a great idea." But a lot of people didn't like that so much, and and uh, yet he stumbled into this thing. But he decided he would stick with this, and and say that, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe that's the right way for a Bible college to keep the Christian flag up front. And so he just goes through it very uh, very well and, and very patiently and, and so that, that's another book that uh, is really Sounds good. Sounds terrific. And then um, uh, I like to read the Acton Institute blog, they're mm-hmm. really good. And then this other one, again by Douglas Wilson, blog and a blog. Uh, which What's the name of that again? Blog and my blog. Okay. And, uh, and it, it comes at it from a biblical perspective, as does the Acton Institute, and really helps put things in
0: perspective. Sure. And very important to remember the context in which we do our work. Well, Bill Peacock, it is a privilege to work with you every day. Thank you for your leadership. You're a great Texan and a great American. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.